Well, howdy, and welcome to another edition of Railfan Roberts Reading Railroad. <laughs> Chapter 17 Hostages Light as Indians, the three hardies hurried across the lawn and disappeared among the trees. They headed for the road a good distance away. I hope a bus comes along, Frank said to himself. Then we can get to a phone and report. His thought was rudely interrupted as the boys and their father heard a sound that struck terror to their hearts, the clatter of the logs tumbling off the trap door. An instant later came a hoarse shout, Chief! Red! The Hardy's got away! Watch out for him! He must be one of the men we heard coming up from the shore, Joe decided. They must have found Malloy trussed up. Instantly, the place became alive with smugglers flashing their lights. Some of the men ran from the truck toward the road, Ode shouting. Others began to comb the woods. Another man emerged from the trap door. He and his companion dashed to the ocean side of the house. Two burly smugglers flung open the kitchen door and ran out. One shouted, They ain't in the house. And they're not down at the shore. Or the other yelled, I just talked to Clean on the phone down there. You guys better not let those hardies get away, Snapman's voice cut through the night. It'll be the pen for all of you. Fatten Hardy's got a gun. He took Malloy's, came a warning voice from the far side of the house. The two men who had gone to the front now returned. He never misses his mark. When the fracas had started, the detective had pulled his sons to the ground, told them to lie flat, face down, and not to move. Now they could hear the pounding steps of the smugglers as they dashed among the trees. The boys' hearts pounded wildly. It did not seem possible they could be missed. Yet man after man ran within a few yards of the three prone figures, dashed on toward the road. Presently, Mr. Hardy raised his head and looked toward the pilot mansion. Boys, he said tensely, we'll make a run for the kitchen door. The men won't expect us to go in there. The three arose. Swiftly and silently, they crossed the dark lawn and slipped into the house. Apparently, no one had seen them. When Snapman doesn't find us outdoors, Joe whispered, won't he look in here to make sure? Yes, Mr. Hardy replied, but by that time I hope the Coast Guard and State Police will arrive. Joe and I found a hidden stairway to the attic, Frank spoke up. Snapman won't think of looking at it. Let's hide up there. There. You forget the ghost, Joe reminded his brother. He knows we found the stairway. Nevertheless, Frank's suggestion is a good one, Mr. Hardy said. Let's go to the attic. Were any clothes hanging in the closet that might be used to conceal the door? Yes, a man's bathrobe on a rod. 
The Hardys did not dare use a light, had to make their way along by feeling walls and the stair banister. With Frank in the lead and Mr. Hardy between the boys, reaching the second floor, Frank looked out the rear window of the hall. The smugglers are coming back, he remarked in a low voice. The lights are heading this way. The Hardys doubled their speed, but it was still slow going, for they banged into chairs and a wardrobe as Frank felt his way along the hall toward the or the bedroom where the hidden staircase was. Finally, the trio reached it. Just as Frank was about to open the door to the attic, a door on the first floor swung open with a resounding bang. Scatter and search every room, Snapman's crisp voice rang out. We're trapped, Joe groaned. Maybe not, Frank said, hopefully. I have a hunch clean was the ghost. It's possible that he's the only one who knows about this stairway, and he's down at the shore. We'll risk going up, Mr. Hardy decided, but not a sound. He slid the bathroom across the rod so that it would hide the door. The stairs creaked, Joe informed him. Mr. Hardy told his sons to push the tread slowly but firmly with their hands and hold them there until they put one foot between them and then raised up to their full weight. And lean forward so you won't lose your balance, he warned. Fearful that he could not accomplish this, Frank opened the door carefully started up in the pitch blackness. But the dread thought of capture made him use extreme caution, and he reached the attic without having made a sound. After closing the door, Joe and his father quickly followed. The three moved noiselessly to a spot out of sight of the stairway behind a large trunk. They sat down and waited, not daring to even whisper. From downstairs, they could hear running footsteps, banging doors, and loud talk. Not here, not here, not here. The search seemed to come to an end for the second floor group had gathered right in the bedroom where the secret stairway was. This is it, the end. They're going to search up here, thought Frank thought woefully. His father reached over and grasped the hand of each of his sons in a reassuring grip. Someone yanked open the closet door. The Hardys became tense. Would the robe over the entrance to the secret stairway fool him? Empty, the man announced, and shut the door. The smugglers went downstairs. There were fervent handshakes among the detective and his sons. Other than this, they did not move a muscle of their bodies, although they inwardly relaxed. Now new worries assailed the Hardys. It was possible that Snapman and his gang Having been alerted would move out and disappear before the police or Coast Guard could get to the house on the cliff. Frank's heart gave a jump. He suddenly realized that his father was hiding to protect his sons. Had he been alone, the inner detective would have been downstairs battling to get the better of Snapman and break up the smuggling rig. What a swell father he is, Frank thought. Then another idea came to him. 
Maybe being here isn't such a bad plan after all. Dad might have been fatally shot if he had been anywhere else on the property. A moment later, the Hardys again became aware of voices on the second floor. They recognized one as Snapman's, the other as Clean's. Yeah, there's a secret stairway to the attic, Clean announced. Found it while I was playing Ghost. Them Hardy boys, they found it too. I'll bet my last take on those rare drugs we get in the night that the uh, Dick and his sons are up in that attic. The hearty spirits sank. They were going to be captured again after all. They heard the door at the foot of the stairway open. Go up and look, clean, ordered Snatman. Not me, Fenton Hardy has Malloy's gun. I say go up. You can't make me clean, objected in a whining tone. I'd just be a sure target. Because I couldn't see him. He'd be hiding and let me have it so quick I never knew what hit me. Despite the grave situation, Frank and Joe's faces were creased in smiles. But they faded as Snapman said, I'll go myself. Give me that big light. Suddenly a brilliant beam was cast into the attic. It moved upward accompanied by heavy footsteps. Hardy, if you want to live, say so, Snapman said in an evil ring in his voice. No answer from the detective. You got your corner this time. Um, Mr. Hardy did not reply. Listen, Hardy, Snapman shouted. I know you're up there because you moved that bathrobe. I'll give you just one minute to come down out of that attic. Still no answer and an interval of silence followed. Then came Snapman's voice again. This is your last chance, Hardy. Nearly a minute went by without a sight from the two enemy camps. Then Snapman moved up the stairs a few more steps. Hardy, I have a proposition to make to you, he said presently. I know you don't want to die, and you want those boys of yours to live, too. Well, so do I want to live, so let's call it quits. The detective maintained his silence. Snapman continued up the steps. Give you my word I won't shoot, and I know you'll never fire first unless you have to. A moment later, he appeared at the top of the stairs, empty-handed except for the light. In a moment, he spotted the Hardys with his high-powered flashlight. Here's the proposition. Your lives in exchange for mine and my gangs. How do you mean? Mr. Hardy asked coldly. I mean, the smuggler said, that you are my hostages. Hostages? Frank and Joe exclaimed together. Yes. If my men and I could get our stuff moved away before the police or the Coast Guard might happen in here, then you can leave a little later. But if they do come, Frank asked, then I'll bargain with them, Snapman answered, and I don't think they'll turn me down. They don't know where you are, but I'll make them understand I mean business. If they take me, you three die. 
Frank and Joe gasped. The famous Fenton Hardy and his sons were to be used as a shield to protect a ruthless gang of criminals. The boys looked at their father in consternation. To their amazement, he looked calm, but his mouth was drawn into a tight line. It won't do you any good to shoot me, Hardy. Malloy said all the chambers in that had are empty but one. If the gang hears a shot, they'll be up here in a minute to finish you all off properly. The Hardys realized that if Snapman's remark about the gun were true, they were indeed at the mercy of this cunning, scheming, conniving smuggler. He now started backing toward the stairway. I think I'm a pretty fair guy, he said with the trace of a satisfied smile. And one to be hated and feared, Joe thought in a rage. We've got to outwit this man somehow, he determined. But at that moment, the possibility of this looked hopeless. Chapter 18 Coast Guard Action While the Hardy Boys had been investigating the smugglers' hideout and had been captured together with their father, Tony and Chet were trying their best to accomplish the errand which Frank and Joe had given them. During the early part of their trip back to Bayport to contact the Coast Guard, the Napoli had cut through the darkness like a streak. Then, suddenly, Tony exclaimed, Oh no, my startboard light just went out. Chet turned to look at the port side. This light's all right. Must be the bulb in the other one. That's what I was afraid of, said Tony. I'll bet I haven't another bulb. You mean somebody might not see the Napoleon Ramus? Chet asked fearfully. We'll have to be careful, Tony replied. Chet, take the wheel, will you? I'll see if I can find an extra bulb. Chet changed places with Tony throttled the motor, gazed intently ahead. The moon had not yet risen, and it was difficult to see very far ahead. Find anything? Chet called out as Tony finished his round of the lockers and was now rummaging in the last one. Not yet, Tony pulled out a canvas bag, a pair of sneakers, and some fishing tackle. As he reached in for the last article in the yard, Article in the locker. He gave a whoop of joy. Here's one ball, just one. Keep your fingers crossed, pal. If this isn't any good, we're in a mess. And breaking the law besides, Chet added. He held his breath as Tony went forward, crawled inside the prow of the Napoli he, with a flashlight, Tony found the protecting shield for the bolt and unfastened it. After removing the dead bolt, he screwed in the new one. As the light flashed on, Tony breathed a sigh of relief and started to crawl out of the prow. Good work, Chet said. It's lucky we... Chet never finished the sentence. At this instant, 
he saw another speedboat loom up in front of him. Like lightning, he swung the wheel around, missing the oncoming craft by inches. You fool! The driver of the other boat shouted. Why don't you watch where you're going? Chet did not reply. He was quivering. <laughs> Besides, he had stalled the motor, which had been throttled so low it had not been able to take the terrific swerving. Oh, now I've done it, the stout boy wailed. There was no response from Tony for several seconds. He had been thrown violently against the side of the boat and was dazed. But he quickly collected his wits and crawled down beside Chet. What happened? he asked. Chet told him, then said, You better take over. I'm a rotten pilot. <laughs> Tony took the seat behind the wheel, started the motor, sped off toward Barmet Bay. We sure wasted a lot of time, he remarked. I wonder how Frank and Joe are making out. Hope they found Mr. Hardy, Chet added. There was no more conversation until the boys turned into the bay. The Coast Guard station for the area was a short distance along the southern shore of the bay and Tony headed the Napoli directly for it. He pulled up at the dock where two patrol boats and a cutter were tied. The two boys climbed out and hurried up to the white building. As they were about to enter it, Chet and Tony were amazed to find Biff Hooper and Phil Cohen coming out of it. Jerry Gilroy, another Bayport High friend, was with them. Well, for Pete's sake! The three cried out, and Biff added, Boy, are we glad to see you. Where are Frank and Joe? Still hunting the smugglers, Chet replied. What brings you here? Biff explained that an hour ago, Mrs. Hardy had telephoned him to see if he had heard from Frank and Joe. She confessed to being exceedingly worried about her sons. Mrs. Hardy knew they had gone to look for their father father, and she was in a panic that they had been captured by the same men who were possibly holding her husband. I told her I'd round up a couple of the fellows and go on a hunt, Beth went on. Jerry thought maybe Frank and Joe had come back to town and were hiding somewhere around. We looked, but we couldn't find them anywhere, so we borrowed Mr. Gilroy's car and came out here to tell the Coast Guard. They're going to send out boats. You better come in and talk with Chief Warren Officer Robinson yourself. The boys hurried inside. Quickly, Chet and Tony told of the hearty suspicion that they had found the entrance to the smuggler's hideout. Can you send help out there right away, Chet asked. We'll show you where the secret tunnel is. This is astounding, said Chief Robinson. And I'll order the Alice out. You can start within five minutes. I'll phone Mrs. Hardy right away, Jerry offered. I'm afraid, though, the news isn't going to make her feel too good. With Jerry gone, Chet told the chief warning officer that the Hardys thought they knew the names of two of the men who were involved in the smuggling racket. Chet revealed the Hardy's suspicion about Snapman being one, and Ali Cigna, the other. 
We think Allie is a crewman on the Marco Polo that's going to dock early tomorrow morning in Bayport, Chet continued. Frank and Joe got a tip that makes them think this is a big deal. While the ship is offshore, Allie Cigna picks a, pitches stolen drugs overboard and one of the smugglers picks the package up in a speedboat. Robinson raised his eyebrows. Boy, those hardy boys sure take after their father, he remarked. They have the makings of good detectives. Biff told the Coast Guard officer of the boys' adventure at the haunted house on their first visit to the pilot place. Frank and Joe are sure there is some connection between the house and the smugglers. And they are probably right, the chief remarked. I'll call the state police at once, tell them the latest developments in this case. The boys waited while he made the report. Jerry, who had just finished telephoning Mrs. Hardy, said she seemed even more worried than before, but relieved that the Coast Guard was going to take a hand. The chief warrant officer then told the boys he would get in touch with the captain of the Marco Polo at once by ship-to-shore telephone. The connection was made and the boys listened with great interest to the conversation. The captain had a booming voice, which they could hear plainly. Yes, I have a sailor named Ali Cigna, he replied in answer to Chief Robinson's question. He's a member of the kitchen crew. After he had been told that Ali Cigna was suspected of stealing drug shipments, dropping them overboard, or to a confederate, he said, that would be pretty easy for him to do. Cigna probably throws him out when he dumps garbage into the water, even though he's not supposed to do it. The drugs could be in an inflated waterproof bag. Captain, will you have someone keep an eye on this alley Cigna without his knowing he's being watched? Chief Robinson requested. I'll send a patrol boat out from here to watch for any of his gang who may be in a small boat waiting to pick up something he dumps overboard? How far offshore are you? About 16 miles from your headquarters, Hers was the answer. Will you keep in touch with the patrol boat, Robinson requested. It will be the Henley in charge of Chief Perry Officer Brown. I'll do that. Ali Cigna can be arrested when your ship docks. As the conversation was concluded, a uniformed Coast Guardman came in. He was introduced as Chief Petty Officer Bertram in charge of the Alice, which would follow Tony and Chet to the smuggler's hideout. I'm ready, sir, he told his chief, and after a short briefing, he turned to the boys. All set? Chet and Tony nodded. As they turned to follow Bertram, Beth, Phil, and Jerry looked glum. Noting the expressions of the three boys' faces, Chief Robinson leaned across his desk and said, I guess you fellas were hoping to be on this, too. How would you like to go on the Henley with Chief Petty Officer Brown and watch the fun? The eyes of the three boys lit up, and Phil said, You mean it. You want a formal invitation? Chief Robinson asked with a laugh. 
hearing for Chief Petty Officer Brown, and after introducing the boys, he explained what the mission of the Henley was to be. I understand, sir, Brown replied. We'll leave at once. The three boys followed him down to the dock and went aboard. They met the other Coast Guard men, and the fast patrol boat set off. It seemed to the boys as if the 16 miles were covered in an incredibly short time. The lights of the Marco Polo loomed up in the distance. She's moving pretty very slowly, isn't she, Biff asked their skipper. Yes, she's making only about four knots so it would be easy for a small boat to come alongside and take something from her, Phil suggested. Yes, it would. Quickly, the officer picked up the telescope, trained it on the large craft. The galley hatches are on the left, and the tide is coming in, he reported. Anything thrown overboard will float to shore. He ordered the wheelsman to go past the Marco Polo, come down the other side, and approach within 300 yards, then turn off the engines and lights. When they reached the designated spot, Petty Officer Brown ordered everyone on board the Henley not to talk or move around. Marco Polo's decks, as well as the water some distance from the craft, was illuminated by light from some of the stateroom portholes. Biff, Phil, and Jerry crowded close to the chief as he trained his powerful binoculars on the galley hatches so he could give them a running account that might happen. The officer reported little activity aboard the Marco Polo, and the boys assumed that the passengers either were asleep were packing their luggage in anticipation of landing the next morning. Suddenly, Petty Officer Brown saw one of the hatches open. A small man with a swarthy complexion and a rather longish black, coal-black hair appeared in the circular opening. He looked out, then raised a large pail, dumped its contents into the water. Quickly, he closed the hatch. Allie Cigna, the three boys thought as Brown reported what he had seen. They watched excitedly to see what would happen now. Suddenly, Biff grabbed Phil's arm and pointed. Vaguely, they could see a long pole with a scooping net fastened to the end of it appear from outside the circle of light fish among the debris. Petty Officer Brown reported that apparently the person holding the pole had found what he wanted, for he scooped something up and the pole vanished from sight. The boys strained their ears for the sound of a small boat. It did not come, and they were puzzled. They also wondered why Petty Officer Brown seemed to be doing nothing about trying to apprehend the person. The tense skipper suddenly handed the binoculars to Phil. Without a word, the puzzled boy looked through them at the spot where Brown had been gazing. To his amazement, he could make out the dim shape of a speedboat with two figures in it. Each held an oar, 
and was rowing the small boat away from the Marco Polo as fast as possible. We've got the smugglers dead to rights, Petty Officer Brown whispered to the boys. Aren't you going to arrest some fellas? Not yet, the officer told him. I'm afraid we can't do it without some shooting. I don't want to scare the passengers on the Marco Polo. We'll wait a few minutes. Suddenly, the engine of the smuggler's speedboat was started. Tersely, Brown began issuing orders to his men. The motors roared into action. The chase was on. No part of this episode may be reproduced without my personal permission. Rail Fan Roberts Reading Railroad is a production of Raccoon Gaming Rails Railroad Productions. And all, all podcast episodes are owned by Raccoon Gaming Rails Railroad Productions.